We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 21, and we're taking a break from our normal uh, series through the Gospel of Matthew. And in August, we're looking at the, the idea of spiritual renewal and focusing on prayer and restoration. And we've looked at a case study of a case study of someone who has fallen and then gets built back up and picked back up again. And that's the, the story of Peter. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at how uh, Jesus comes on the night before he is crucified and tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift him. He wants to shake him. And what we saw a couple weeks ago is that we've all experienced one global shaking where Satan has tried to sift and shake and tear apart and destroy all of our faith, all of our community, all of our hope. And uh, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, but what Jesus has done, his response, he says, I'm praying for you. So we looked at the power of the prayer of Jesus for his people. And last week we looked at the, what Satan actually wanted to destroy was Peter's faith. But Jesus prays that his faith doesn't fail. So we looked at what does it mean to have a faith that's, that is not failing, that doesn't fail. And then this way we're going to actually look at how, because Jesus tells Peter that he's going to rise. So we're going to look at Peter's restoration how he gets built back up and put back together again after he falls and is broken. And so uh, as we do that, I want you to think about, so uh, Camden, bring up the first picture of the little boy. So this is Timek. He is like any other uh, toddler. Uh, he's from Poland, and he was, uh, or is, he's active, he's energetic, he's prone to wander, prone to put things in his mouth that he shouldn't. And, uh, you know, if you've had any, you know, toddler, you know that they're always just one step away from seeming total disaster, and you wonder how any of them survive. But Timek uh, got a hold of, tragically, got a hold of some toxic chemicals when he was... Um, 13 months old, and he drank them, and uh, it destroyed his throat. Uh, they rushed him to the hospital. The doctors didn't know if he would be able to uh, live, uh, but he did. And then they didn't know all right, if he'd ever be able to eat normally or have to eat from a feeding tube his whole life or ever be able to talk again. And here he is as a six-year-old, and he can. He can speak. He can talk. And he can do all of those things because of the, the skillful hands of his surgeon, Dr. Adam Machewski. And he's one of the leading micro, um, like a micro reconstruction surgeons in Poland. And uh, his team actually uh, performed micro reconstruction surgery on Tamek's throat, and they repaired and rebuilt his larynx, his trachea, his throat, and even his bone marrow. And so his team was honored this past year with this prestigious fellowship for their tremendous work in micro uh, reconstruction. And you just think about right, the, the delicate, surgical, skillful precision you would need in your hands to be able to reconstruct something as tender and as delicate as a child's throat. And it's just a marvel. I mean, in one sense, any, you know, reconstructive surgery is a marvel, but something that tender, something that delicate, it's amazing. But now you think about, all right, what type of tender, delicate hands would you need not to reconstruct a broken throat, but a broken spirit? Like, how could you do soul reconstructive surgery? 
You know, at least with the throat, you can see what you're trying to put back together again. But with the soul, you can't see it. And actually, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to go into the the operating room and we're going to watch the great physicians of our soul actually do reconstructive surgery on a shattered spirit, a broken soul. And he's going to put him back together again and he's going to come back even better, even stronger than he was before. So that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 21. So let's start off in verse 1. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of the disciples were all together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we're coming with you. So then they went out and got into the boat that night, but they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. And he said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had taken it off to work and he threw himself in the sea. And then the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they weren't far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in its place and the fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of the large fish. There was 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so uh, and ate the fish. And now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him, Simon, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to show what kind of death he would glorify God. And then after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So here what we see is Jesus is restoring. He's putting Peter back together again. And so as we look at it, I want you to kind of use, we'll use the, the controlling image metaphor of spiritual reconstructive surgery. But the first thing I just want you to notice is notice the friends who were in the waiting room. Do you notice in verse 2, they were all there together? And there was seven of the disciples. And they, uh, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they said, look, we're coming with you. And... Uh, I th- one of the things you remember that Satan wanted to do is he wanted to strike Jesus and attack Peter in such a way where they all were scattered. It's one of the things Matthew and Mark both tell us that, you know, the, the, they quote the scripture that if I strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And Satan wanted to sift and to shake and to tear apart all of them. He wanted all of them. 
And what's so interesting is here, they've gone through the darkness, they've gone through the shaking, and they're still together. There's seven of them. They're still together. And even though they've gone through the great sifting, as you know, we think about our world, you know, one of the great challenges we're going to have as we pass through the great sifting is how do we put back together all those things that have been torn apart? You know, it's one of the sadnesses that you look in communities and so many communities, um, there's so many churches, Churches over the past two years have been torn apart. And then you can see it, that the fabric of social life in so many communities as they've been torn apart. I mean, even right now, in some ways, we're kind of in ground zero of the current thing that's tearing communities apart in elementary schools about whether or not the kids will wear masks in schools or not. But you can see the front line of the battle. It's elementary schools. It's in hospital emergency rooms. It's local businesses. It's churches. All of these social uh, uh, institutions that hold us together are being torn apart. And one of the great questions is, all right, how do, we, how do we get it back together again? And at some point, the dust will settle. You know, at some point, hopefully, all of the great moral grandstanding will come to an end. And at some point, we won't be hit every single day with a barrage of just bad news over and over again. At some point, it seems it has to, it has to mellow out and come to a stop. And then the question will be, who will be there to put things back together again? And I really think that'll be the great challenge and the great calling for Christians in every community. And kind of one of the challenges in our world right now, all we have, or we have the, the federal government, and then we have the lone individual, and all of those mediating institutions that make life worth living are being fractured. And at some point, somebody's going to have to put all of those back together again. And what we're really going to need are really skillful seamstresses who can weave the social fabric of society back together again. And the way you do it is you weave it with one act of kindness at a time. One smile is a no stitch, weaving it back together again. Notice they're going to be together. Satan wanted to smash them and have them scatter, and he didn't. He failed. They were still there. You know, that's one of the remarkable things. You just look at the history of like the Christian church and you think of all of the upheaval and the trials and the difficulties. And it's just a marvel. We're we're still here and we will be here because Jesus has promised that he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so the question is, once the dust settles, who will be there to help put things back together again? They were the patients. They were there. They were in the waiting room together. But now let's look at the patient who's on the operating table. So I think one of the most fascinating character arcs in the Bible is the growth and development, kind of the rise, the fall, the, the humbling, and then the empowering of Peter. And what's so interesting is he's come full circle in his interaction with Jesus because this story that happens in John 21 is almost perfectly paralleled in Luke 4 at the very beginning when Jesus first calls Peter to follow him. We have the same scenario where they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. Jesus tells them, all right, you haven't caught anything? Throw your net over here. And they have this overwhelming haul where they bring in all of these fish. But do you remember in Luke 4 how Peter responds to Jesus at that time? He falls down and he says, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. 
And then here, he's the exact same scenario, exact same situation, uh, same problem, same result, but opposite reaction. Here, instead of putting distance between him and the Lord, he runs to him. And so interesting, what's happened? What's happened in Peter's life that now, instead of putting distance to separate him from the Lord, he's going to run to him. And I think one of the things that's re constructing his soul is the realization that the most important thing is not Peter's past, but it's Jesus's. It's not what Peter actually did on that night. It's what Jesus accomplished on that night. And if you base your self-image on like your successes, any failure is going to destroy you. You know, any reminder of your sin is going to be like a death to you that'll eat you away. But one of the marks of someone who's had a supernatural encounter with the living Lord is in times like that, you run to him, not away from him. And so here, Peter on the operating table is going to go through this amazing transformation. Because in so many ways, you know, he was so proud and that he thought he would be the great leader and the rock of the church that Jesus would build upon. And he would be that because he would perform better and more heroically than all of those others. But then what he had to face is that whole night. It wasn't just the denial in the garden. It was the whole night was one cycle of failure after failure. I mean, Jesus asked him to stay awake in the garden. He fell asleep, and then he impulsively attacked one of the guards, and then he denied him three times. And so Jesus is going to restore him, but before he can build him up to truly be that rock, he has to be broken down. And that's happened And so now let's look how Jesus actually puts them together again. Let's look at the skillful hands of the surgeon. So let's pull out the the third thing, the skillful hands of the surgeons, because this is, in one way, this is John's way of telling us that anybody can be made new again. No matter what you've done, what you've experienced, you can be recreated. You can be recommissioned. And it, it touches a deep longing that's in all of our hearts. You know, it's part of the longing that we have at the every, beginning of every new year. Like, can we start afresh? You know, the beginning of every opening day for baseball or opening weekend for college football fans. There's always this sense of hope. And for many people, that hope dies that first weekend. And they have to wait a whole other year till the hope can revive. But there's always hope that maybe something new uh, can come. So the way Jesus actually heals him, the hands of the surgeon, he uses there's three questions, three answers, and then three commands. This is the surgery. Three questions, three answers, three commands. So let's actually pull up the three questions that Jesus asked Peter. Did you notice the three questions? Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's interesting. Why does he use Simon, son of John? That's kind of like the formal language. Maybe you ever grew up in a house where if your uh, mother said your full name, you knew, all right, something significant is about to happen. This is the, the formal designation. And it's actually how Jesus called him the very first time. The very first time he called him was Simon, son of John. And it's interesting when he says, do you love me? More than these. It's kind of like, what, is, what are these? What's that a reference to? Is it more than these? Maybe like the fishing equipment? Do you love me more than your previous life as a fisherman? Do you love me more than these? Like, do you love me more than you love your, the other disciples? Or maybe it's, do you love me more than, than they do? You know, part of Peter's great boast is that even if all of them fall away, I won't. I will die for you. 
Maybe he's saying, do you really? Do you think you love me more than they do? But notice the way Jesus starts to cut on us, on our soul, is through the skillful application of proper questions. And you notice each of the questions, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Not do you love ministry? Not do you love the spotlight? Do you love the recognition? Not do you love the praise? Not do you love being on the inside? Not do you love being the one who has the authority? Do you love me? And then notice, it's not do you believe me? Do you understand me? Do you appreciate me? Do you get me? It's do you love me? You know, essentially, why does Jesus go there? You know, this actually word love is one of the more challenging kind of exegetical questions. Like, what is Jesus doing here? There's a play on words because there's uh, Greek has a whole range of different words to express love. And when Jesus asked Peter for the first two, he uses the word agape, which is kind of, you know, it's can be thought of as like this uh, grand, the highest form of love, God's love for others. And then Peter, when he responds, he says, you know that I love you phileo, which is brotherly love. And so it's interesting what's happening here. And we probably don't want to make too much of it because like the Greek, the great Greek church fathers like John Chrysostom and Cyril, who they were Greek, so they knew Greek well, they didn't make a whole lot of it. But it is interesting Actually, Chrysostom says maybe one of the things you can see here is Jesus is putting his you know, exalted love here. Peter's is here. And then Jesus is going to step down to where he is, meet him exactly where he is. But it's interesting. But that's love. Do you love me? And love is one of the central themes of the gospel. Like in the gospel of John, you know, it's, it's because God so loved the world that he sent his son to begin with. And then Jesus has already told them that the way they're going to uh, demonstrate him to the world is that they're going to love one another. So God, so God so loved the world that he sends his son so that they can then get caught up in that love and then show it back to the world. It's this cycle. And so that's the key question. And that's the key, the key surgical question. Do you love me? Because in one sense, all sin is a battle of loves. You know, I find it so interesting that what Jesus doesn't do is notice he doesn't ask him any questions about the night. Like he doesn't go back to like litigate the logistics of what happened. Like, Peter, what were you thinking? Why did you even go into the garden? Why didn't you just ignore them? What were you doing? They don't start arguing about the details. See, he goes right to the heart of the matter, which is the heart. Do you love me? Because really all sin is a battle for loves. And the key question is, all right, when Peter, when you were denying me at that moment, what were you truly loving? What was your highest love at that moment? Your own comfort? Your own reputation? What were you really loving? And what's interesting is you think about all the things that Peter had, like all of his privileges. I mean, he had, uh, and, and none of these things actually had produced love. You know, Peter had religious involvement that's just unparalleled, involvement with Jesus. You know, Peter had been given by Christ the highest office in the church, and that didn't produce love. He had had amazing experiences, the kind of experiences that almost no one else in the world has ever had. I mean, he had been on the boat with Jesus. He had stepped out, and he had actually walked on water for a moment. 
And then he had seen Jesus and been right by his side when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He had been with Jesus when he transfigured on the mountain and he had seen the resurrected Moses and Elijah. I mean, Peter had these experiences unlike almost anyone else in the history of the world. And yet those hadn't produced Love. Do you love me? And Peter had made great sacrifices. When uh, in John uh, chapter 6, when disciples start to leave and Jesus asks them, are you going to go too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? Like we've left everything to follow you. So great experiences, great sacrifices. But the real question is, do you love me? You know, think about Augustine, St. Augustine. He said, you know, the goal of every sermon is for the, the goal of every sermon is to increase your love for God and love for one another. So that's how you know it's, it's a good sermon is if it helped you love God more and love one another because love is the heart of, of uh, real living relationships. So Jesus is going to surgically target the heart of the matter. And then now to note a second, Peter's answers, how he responds I mean, notice the personal address. Is Peter, do you love me? And this, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And notice, interesting, on the third one, he doesn't say yes. It tells us that he was grieved or given a window into his, his heart. He was grieved. Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. Notice all the, you know, you know, you know, you know. You know, in one sense, this is personal address. What Peter has to do is he has to kind of humbly not deflect, not blame shift. You know, think about all the different ways Peter could have responded if he was trying to defend himself. He goes, okay, okay, all right, yes, yeah, Lord, you know I love you, but let's not, let, all right, let's talk about Pilate for a second. Let's talk about the political nightmare that is Pilate. I mean, that guy, what a spineless, no good. He capitulated. He knew you were, were innocent, and then he still sentenced you to death because he didn't have enough backbone to stand up to the mob. Oh, what a disaster. Or let's talk about Caiaphas for a second. Let's talk about the religious institution where you're supposed to have this man of God who's supposed to be so holy, and what kind of dog and pony show has he orchestrated? Let's think about that. I mean, yeah, I know I, I, mean, I, know I denied you, you know, in, the, in his uh, you know, in his garden, but I, you know, there was some there was some shady characters in, in Caiaphas' household. You know, I know that servant girl that attacked me, but I mean, what was she doing there anyway? I mean, is it really appropriate to have a young girl in that kind of situation? I'm not accusing him of anything. I'm just asking the question. So let's think about Caiaphas. Let's think about Herod. I mean, come on. And you know, all the different ways Peter could have pointed the finger and blamed. And notice what Jesus says: It's do you. No, 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 no. I'm not talking to Pilate. I'm not talking to Herod. I'm not talking to Caiaphas. I'm talking to you. You know, in that moment when all of us stand before the living Lord to give an account for our life, we won't be able to blame shift or point fingers. We won't be able to say, oh, Lord, well, actually, I mean, if you knew the, the home I grew up in or if you knew the kind of boss I had, we won't be able to point those fingers. We won't be able to say, if you only knew about the failed policies of the previous administration, you wouldn't be asking me these questions. You know, at that moment, it's only you. And we will stand before him to give an account of us and here you notice Peter's response, there's not a lot of talking, not a lot of self-justification, not a lot of explanations. He says, you know, 
The truest thing that Peter says here is, you know. He knows. And he will know how to execute justice and judgment. He knows. And what I find so interesting, you know, there's no yes in the third answer, but we're given a window. And what has to happen for the the patient to be healed, the surgeon has to cut away all the calcifying, you know, remnants of our own self justification or self-aggrandizement or blame shifting and excuse making and the moral superiority that we like to try and prop up to make ourselves look and feel better. He's got to cut all that away. And then once that's away, notice what Jesus comes in with the three commands, the commands. So in one sense, it's the, the, the questions are meant to cut you, but it's then the commands that build you back up. Uh, look at the third, the commands. And it's feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He's going to give them these commands. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And then the final one is follow me. And of course, the key word in all that is my. Feed my. You know, such a glorious gift that Jesus is about to transform Peter from a fisherman to a shepherd And he's going to give him responsibility and oversight of his most precious possession. These sheep that I just died for, you're going to join me and you're going to represent me as I feed them and tend them and take care of them. You know, one of the most glorious truths in all the scriptures that all of God's people for 3,000 years have held on to during the darkest times is that the Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want. He will lead me. He will guide me. He will protect me. And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is my shepherd. And then Jesus is giving Peter the incredible privilege to come alongside him and take uh, a role and responsibility of tending and caring for his sheep. And this is what real leadership in Christ's church is all about. You have to be broken down and then built back up. And Peter will serve as a shepherd in Jesus' absence. But then notice the, the commands. And actually, one of the reasons as we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll start to look and remind ourselves of some of them over the next couple of weeks. Because Matthew's Gospel is the great gospel, the teacher's gospel, where it teaches us how we can live once we've uh, been built back up, how we can follow So it's a skillful questions to help you determine, all right, where am I? And then it's obedience, those commands that help us know how we can move forward. So if you think about the reconstructive uh, reconstruction uh, process, think about your own self. All right, now you're the patient. You're on the table. And Jesus starts to surgically ask about your soul. Do you love me? You know, in the midst of all the uncertainty, in the midst of all the frustration, in the midst of all the change and the challenge and the energy and the anger, do you love me? And then how would you respond? Yes, Lord, you know. You know. Don't pretend. You know. Actually, Lord, you know that I am afraid. You know that I am angry. You know that I'm confused. You know that I am these things. He knows. And you bring it before him. And he can begin to put you back together again. 
Of course, Peter's love was fueled, not because Peter loved uh, Jesus, but because Jesus first loved Peter. And we know that we love him because he first loved us. And each week we celebrate communion because it's our weekly reminder of the ultimate place that we look to, to both see and experience the reality of his love for us. So as we get ready to take communion, let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, it was in your infinite love that you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you, you became subject to evil and death. And in your mercy, you sent your only son into the world for our salvation. And by the Holy Spirit, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself up once for all. And by his suffering and death, we might be saved. And by his resurrection, he broke the power of death, trampling on hell and Satan underneath his feet. And then now as a great high priest, he's seated at your right hand in glory to open up a way into your presence. So we praise you for his broken body and spilled blood that opens up a way so we can come into your presence. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.